that was the beginning of working out how to create opportunities for yourself. For me, you know, it's like, okay, I can do this. The work I want to do doesn't exist here, but I can make it happen myself. And the blog grew into an Instagram account. It grew into a book um, that I got published that, I mean, I laugh now thinking about it because... G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. This episode today was recorded on the lands of the Wadarung people. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to say g'day to any Torres Strait Islander or Indigenous people that are tuning into our podcast and extend my respects to your mob, wherever they are. It's National Reconciliation Week. And I'd like to start off by sharing a little bit about my journey. But first, the theme for this year is Be Brave, Make Change. You may have noticed that mid last year, we began introducing the acknowledgement to every podcast episode. It's something that I'd really wanted to do for a while, but I hadn't because I was worried that I was going to get it wrong. For me, I found that leaning in and reaching out to a few Indigenous mates and people I've got to know been able to allow me to start to make the small steps and changes here on humans of agriculture which i think many of you are starting to pick up on i found that being respectful is absolutely always vitally important but being curious is how we can make change and grow our own understanding so i hope that we can go on a journey i know i'm not always going to get it right but i can promise you i'm going to be curious respectful lean into those people who i can reach out to And we're going to learn along the way. Today's podcast guest is Annabelle Hickson. She's coming to us from up at Tenderfield, up in Queensland. But Annabelle actually grew up just a few streets away from me in Sydney's North Shore. Although we never knew each other in Sydney, we did have a little moment on the podcast where we were reflecting on the streets of our childhood. Annabelle landed her dream job at the Australian newspaper. But a few years later, she met the farmer. Annabelle shares more about her journey, what it was like walking into the Maury Chronicle once she'd made the move, feeling like she'd be welcomed with open arms. Only, the experience that she got was vastly different. In 2020, from the pecan farm that her, her husband Ed and the kids live on, Annabelle founded Galar, a print magazine that's all about regional Australia and the incredible stories and people that call it home. I hope you guys enjoy the chat. It's kind of funny how things happen. So last year I was living down in Paddington in five ways and there's this tiny little bookshop there that sits next to the cafe near the Royal. And in the front window was Galar, like the, the latest edition. And, I, and then a couple of days later, I ended up going to farm writers and you were the speaker. And I was like, oh, so I went back to take a photo of the front window, but Galar had obviously been moved because the week had ended. I think it was so cool seeing pretty well in the inner suburbs of Sydney, Galar, front window, and then seeing you talk at Farm Riders. It was cool. Yeah, well, how about that? It's funny, you know, that shop in Paddington, that's our best stockist. Really? Yeah. So there's demand in the city for, you know, country life, country stories, aspirational heartland. <laughs> what, um, uh, who, who is your audience? How are you? How do you even get into stockists and, and places like that? Yeah, well, it's we've sort of, oh, it's so interesting, Ollie. I mean, what I've learned about, I guess, not only the publishing industry, but the sort of distribution part, you know, it's this whole, it's this whole world. So our audience, we're, up, we're working on issue six at the moment. So we've got a bit of a feel for who our readers are. And they're 60% regional, 40% city. And, you know, given that Galah is a magazine entirely about regional Australia, I was surprised, but pleasantly surprised that we had such a sort of significant metro audience. And I think that's because like one of my main driving forces about creating, you know, behind creating Galar is that, well, number one, it sort of reflects what's exciting and innovative and the kind of opportunities that are out in regional Australia. You know, it's not all kind of floods, droughts, you know, there's all this exciting stuff. But the second one is to sort of, be a bit of a bridge between urban Australia and we are one of the most urbanised countries in the world, even though we have these great sort of this almost mythology about the bush. There are so many 
urban people who don't have a connection to regional Australia. So the second goal is to sort of make a bit of a bridge. And I mean, I was one of these urban people, like I just had no connection with regional Australia. I knew nothing about it. So I sort of have great sympathy, <laughs> you know, for, you know, I just never thought about regional Australia. I was just like urban. And then I, you know, fell in love with a farmer. So back to your question about stockers. So, um, so the traditional magazine model is um, distributed into news agencies or, and supermarkets, you know, and, and you pay a distributor, you know, per copy. And then the news agencies sell them, they take a cut, um, but they only pay you on copy sold. So what happens is, you know, like a really good sell-through rate for a magazine would be 70% and then 30% is unsold. And that just ends up in landfill because it costs these news agencies money to send them back. So instead of sending them back, they just chuck them out. And that to me just feels like a really old fashioned model, you know, like yeah. it's 2022 print is a luxury these days, you know, and it's, it's like we're chopping down trees to make the paper. And to, to me, it just is crazy. So I really wanted to avoid that distribution model as much as I could. I mean, I do probably about 10 to 15% of what we print, I do send to news agencies, but the rest is sold directly, um, either through our subscribers on our website or this kind of gang of stockists that we've assembled ourselves. And that has just been a matter of calling people saying, we think Alara would be a great fit or, you know, and as it's sort of grown shops and stockists approach us. So we've, I think we've got more than a hundred stockists all over Australia. So we're sort of building a little network, which is really fun. That's incredible. Do you, when did the like momentum start to come for you guys? When did people start contacting you and I guess a bit of a, a buzz coming around Galar? Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's, if I, I mean, I could look at all the stats, I suppose, but from. We'll go off the vibe. Well, the vibe has not been, there hasn't been like one spike, you know, it's just been a very sort of consistent, you know, uphill trajectory, just slowly and steady. And to me, actually, that's really good because that to me is sort of solid, real growth. You know, you can have little spikes, I guess, with some kind of marketing thing. Like actually at the beginning, I think it was so shocking that someone was starting a print publication. I got on a bit of news, you know, like ABC <laughs> radio. And and then there was, I was on... um the Channel 9 uh, news, breakfast news TV program, you know, on the weekend. Yeah. And so before I hadn't even printed the magazine and they sort of gave it this big plug and it was like, you know, the ding, 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 ding of orders coming in. It was like confetti falling from the sky. So that was probably a, a big spike. But And they're great, those ones, but they're, to me, just sort of one-offs and it's almost like a bit of luck, really. Whereas this slow, steady growth is what I think would be the like actual foundation of a business. I'm I'm keen to jump back a little bit, but firstly, whereabouts are you coming to us from today? Um, so I'm uh, in my bedroom slash office slash everything <laughs> <laughs> on a pecan farm. So we're sort of in between, we're halfway in between Tenterfield and Texas, right on the New South Wales, Queensland border. Gotcha. I spent a couple of weeks in Texas off the back end of the lockdown last year. Oh, right. Isn't Texas great? Texas mm, is a great town. It's small. It has, there's no, yeah. And there's like no McDonald's. There's no, you know, it's just this, it's almost, it's one of the few towns left with sort of just village, like a village life, I think. I mean, that's not true. I'm sure there are lots of towns that have that, but I think they're in becoming increasingly rare. And a pecan farm. I don't think I've ever met a pecan farmer before. Uh, well, you're not meeting one now. I mean, uh, I live here and I love it, but I certainly am not a pecan farmer. Ed's the pecan farmer. You'll have to talk to him, actually. It's fascinating, the yeah, pecan cool. world. Yeah, I've met a few peanut growers around that area. Yeah, too. yeah. No, this is the first pecan farm in this valley, but we used to live in Moree, so that was really close to the big um, established pecan farm out there. So that was, we've learned a lot from them and a lot of their research they were really happy to share, which is great because, you know, it's it takes seven years for the trees to really get up and running. So it is an enormous leap of faith, really. And how what, how's it going for you guys? What year are you up to? Is, is the pecan business going well? Well, it's, it's, we're just beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So some, our oldest trees and 
Ed will kill me because I always get this wrong. I think they're about eight years old. Um, but we've got, you know, trees staggering right down to brand new baby ones. So the oldest trees are sort of really just starting to come into production. So hopefully we're getting closer to um, having a great business. But yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's a long stretch. Work in progress. Luckily, yeah. there's this little magazine which you're working on. But so you, you grew up near the beach. Well, not really near the beach, no, in the suburbs of Sydney on the North Shore, the leafy North Shore. Oh, I was in Moronga. That's where I grew up. That's where I grew up too. No way. Really? Ollie. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, we, we know each other's turf. Yeah. I was Junction Road, just near Grosvenor. Oh my God. I was Water Street with the beautiful plane You're trees. Kidding. Yeah. Well, there you go. Off the back of the bush school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Small world. Oh, wow. And look at us now, how our world's expanded. <laughs> yeah, two people from Warunga go and find agriculture and rural Australia and off they go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, oh, definitely not close to the coast. How on earth did you end up in journalism? I Well, you know, interestingly, I didn't do journalism at uni. I just did a, a, an arts commerce degree and... Um, but when I was at uni, I've always loved reading, always loved writing, and I was sort of becoming increasingly freaked out about what I would do after uni. You know, I thought, oh, gosh, maybe I should try and get in an investment bank or something. You know, I was just trying to think about how to be a grown-up, but actually I have no interest in any of that stuff. And for I know that journalism is not sort of a very well-trusted um, occupation, but for me, it feels like really meaningful, important work. You know, I just, I just think it's so important. And without it, I think we wouldn't really want to live in a society without journalism. Anyway, I, I realised that that's what I wanted to have a crack and a crack at. So I, without a journalism degree, just rang and rang and rang. I got hold of the guy's number at the Australian newspaper who's sort of in charge of cadets. And I just did not give up until I got, you know, I got an interview. Then I got the cadetship. I had to work for, for free for a few months, which is, you know, interesting. Like you have to be in a pretty privileged position to be able to do that, you know. So, but anyway, that's what I did. And I ended up getting the cadetship and I was a general news reporter and I was just in heaven. This is like I, th those days of working in that bureau with all the, you know, mad journalists around. It was, it was heaven. What's it like being in that area and, and general news? Is that just everything that's happening day to day? Yeah, everything happening. So normally, I mean, I guess the sort of lowly, you know, entry level reporter jobs are in general news. And if there's a car crash and someone dies, they send you out to do a death knock and get a quote from, the, you know, like it's sort of quite, it can be quite um, sort of maybe sometimes a little bit grubby. It felt a little bit grubby. <laughs> but, you know, conversely, they would send, like me and this sort of cadet photographer, we were just these young girls, you know, these young green girls with no idea. They'd like a cyclone had happened. They'd fly us up. We'd, you know, jump out at, at Darwin or Cairns and then just, you know, have a few cab charges in our pocket. And then we just have to work out what to do ourselves. And I just loved the, the freedom that they gave even sort of young junior reporters and you really had to work it out yourself and I just find that so refreshing especially in this you know world where there's all these systems and rules and bureaucracy it was just it was my dream job really. Was there a favourite article or story that you covered during that time? Oh, um, well my least favourite article was when um, the Bali Nine um, got arrested and somehow the paper got hold of the news before the um, government had contacted the family. So um, a photographer and I rocked up at one of these families' house to, you know, get to talk to them and they didn't know, they didn't know. And so I, I wow. broke the news to them and I actually still feel terrible to this day. You know, it was just completely inappropriate. Um, it was completely inappropriate. So that's my least favourite story. Gosh, my favourite story. I, I mean, I can't think of one, but I did just, I, I really did love it. And I loved working in the, in the office with, you know, a real range of people, um, men, women, old, young, 
you know, and they were just so, it was such a supportive environment for, for being a young journalist. You know, they really, the sort of old, the elders really sort of went out of their way to kind of mentor you. And So how long were you with them for? So not that long, really. I um probably about three years, um, a year, two years in Sydney. And then I went up to the Brisbane Bureau and spent a year there. And that's when I fell in love with this farmer and um, the course of my life changed. What was it like then, uh, I guess you fall in love with a farmer. It's a pretty well one way straight to, if you want to live together and create a life that you, yeah. you're going to have to move away from the big cities. Yeah. And I was really up for it. You know, I mean, I, like I was up for it. I was in love. It felt like an adventure. I didn't, I didn't really, I guess, think too hard about what I was leaving behind. You know, I just, I don't know. I was in my twenties. Didn't really yeah. think much about it. So it wasn't a hard decision at all. What about on the job front though? You leaving this dream job? Yeah. Well, that's it. I didn't actually think about it. I just, I guess I just felt like, oh, well, something else will happen. Um, I mean, the reality is probably good that I actually didn't realise how hard it was to sort of get work that wasn't in the ag sector, you know, in, in where, where I moved to. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even know about that. And if I did, I might have hesitated, but I'm glad I didn't, you know, because it, it took a while for me to sort of find my feet and particularly on the work front, it took me a long time. Um, but I actually think... I'm probably much better off now because I've had to learn how to create these opportunities for myself. You know, they just, there aren't news limited offices out at Moree or out where, where we live now. So you just have to come up with different ways, I guess, to, to make the opportunities to be able to do work that you want to do. And how do you go settling into the local community? Oh, well, so easy because, so first like, we moved to Moree and, and um, Ed's family is from that district. So, you know, straight away just welcomed by so many people and then here when we moved here which is two and a half hours east so it's you know a different community but it's sort of a much smaller community which I just think is great there's no there's no groups there's no clicks you know clicks clicks um we just all kind of live together so the day I arrived you know a, a, a woman who's become a really great friend from up the road said I've heard you've moved to the district you know come over for lunch the the person who lives next door to us has just become one of my best friends and straight, you know, come over for dinner. Her kids were just a little bit older than my kids. She just like gave them dress up clothes. You know, they've given us their hand-me-down motorbike helmets and motorbike, you know, it's just straight away included. Yeah. And on the job front, what did you end up doing? Well, when we moved to Moree, I, um, I walked into the office of the Moree Champion, the local paper there, and I thought, oh, great, they will be, you know, hooray, here she comes. We, here is an office that we've prepared for you. And you know, the reality was quite different. It was like, we do not have a job. This is a lean machine. Yeah. The job. So that was, that was, I think, the, you know, from going this, from this kind of naive, excited you know to like oh wow this actually could be a bit tricky and then I walked across the road to the cafe and I tried to get a job there and I couldn't get a job there either and I was like wow this is this is going to be tough um so I actually didn't work for a few years and I had children so I mean that that certainly kept me busy but I really I, I mean I really respect people who cannot have a sort of a, you know um like a paid job and not go crazy. I, I just sort of really feel lost when I don't have my own work. Um, and I really, for some reason, really take a lot of comfort from earning some of my own money. I mean, I really, not my, I mean, you know, we share it all, but I just, I, I guess I feel nervous when there's just one income stream and particularly with farming, which is so tied to, things completely out of your control, like drought and fire, you know, I am a better family member and mother when I have work. So I actually, I must say, I really struggled for a few years and um, it's funny, sort of out, almost out of desperation, I guess, I was really missing writing and I started a blog, you know, as you did back then. And I started a blog, I started learning how to take photos yeah. to illustrate this blog. And that was, that was the beginning of working out how to create opportunities for yourself for me you know it's like okay I can do this the work I want to do doesn't exist here 
but I can make it happen myself. And the blog grew into an Instagram account. It grew into a book um, that I got published that, I mean, I laugh now thinking about it because it just feels really different to what I'm doing now, but it's sort of almost like a how to do the flowers book. Was that, what was it called? A tree in the house. Yeah, a tree in the house. Um, oh, Ollie, don't tell me you've read it. <laughs> no, I haven't. No, no. I just did my research. <laughs> yeah, good, yeah. When I was thinking, um, I was like, tree in the house? <laughs> yeah, well, I just got obsessed with, you know, like because we were surrounded by so much, you know, wild things growing, I just have secateurs and, and like a saw in the car and I just chop down branches and kind of build bigger and bigger and bigger you know these sort of installations like we lived in this tiny tiny little house when we first moved here I could vacuum it all from one powerpoint and it was we didn't have any money so yeah, I sort of, measure the size of the house. yeah but you know it was like this little thing and um we didn't have any money so I couldn't sort of jazz it up a bit so I just sort of fill it with these increasingly elaborate <laughs> sort of gum tree things and you know like Ed would have to duck to come in and the kids would be eating dinner like looking up sort of slightly concerned at this mom's stuff floating above them yeah mum's gone crazy totally and I think I did go a little bit crazy but it was good you know it was I was channeling this like yearning to like write and create and document and share it you know and it just happened to be channeled into tree in the house stuff but that was great and then publishing the book was really interesting um and I guess that gave me a little taste in of what the publishing world's about and how actually you don't know how to, you don't have to know how to do all parts of it you know on the book um the publisher they'd hire in a, a sub-editor a designer uh, you, you know so there are these amazing professionals who are top of their game that you can actually hire to do what they're good at you don't have to be the master of all trades. So that was that was very interesting. And I think that gave me the confidence to start a magazine, even though I'd had no experience in printing and publishing and that side of things. And the book's an interesting choice. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www dot rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund we'd love to hear from you because like there's a lot of upfront costs and then hoping that people buy it or did you do a pre-sale or like how, how what was the well, learnings from it the book was easy because a publisher you know Heidi Grant published it so they took on all that risk um gotcha. so you know they I got an advance they did everything and now I just get royalties from the sales. But that was also interesting too because you, you go down that path and you as the author have no risk, which is lovely, but you also miss out on a fair chunk of the upside at the end. And, I mean, I've, I, that's one way to do it and it's good, but I did think, oh, I'm interested in self-publishing. Because the book did all right, I think, didn't it? Yeah, the book did really well. I mean, yeah. it's been translated into German, Dutch, Chinese. <laughs> I just, I love the idea of moment. anyone in China with secateurs in their car, like <laughs> creating a tree in the house. I just love that idea. So, yeah, I mean, as books, as books like that go, it's been a great success. Um, so that really got me interested in, oh, okay. I mean, the world's a bit different these days. Like with Instagram, you can have a direct connection with potential you know a potential audience yourself and and mm. I just think there's definitely still a role for publishers I mean we're going to do a book with Galar through a publisher so I certainly still believe in that um, you know and they have amazing distribution they can get it into sort of bookshops all across Australia you know and that stuff takes a lot of work and mm. years of developing relationships but I did think oh I wonder if if the next thing I do I could bypass a publisher and 
and, and just work out how to do a sm- perhaps a smaller project, but something that's more direct. Yeah, cool. So what's this space? Well, that was Galar. So Galar is self-published, you know, it, yeah. So that's, we don't do Galar through a publisher. I mean, I am the publisher, um, which like sometimes I wake up at night and I think, what happens about like defamation and stuff? <laughs> like, will I go to jail? Um, so, you know, I am the publisher mm. and the and the editor. And I mean, don't worry, I have defamation insurance and we have pretty, you know, strict like editorial guidelines and stuff. But it's, you know, with this, with the risk of taking it all on yourself does come the potential reward. Like, I mean, in, in a short amount of time, I guess, doing this self-published direct model, I've been able to build up a business that is, able to pay contributors, pay a full-time employee. You know, this is this would not have been able to, if I'd gone, if I'd been published through someone else, you know, it, there just wouldn't be enough margin to do that. Well, LAWD came on early last year to support the Humans of Agriculture podcast, and we are so thankful for their support. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. And they've certainly been keeping busy over the last 12 months with everything that's happening in the Australian rural property market. Jump over to their website, lawd.com.au, to check out their listings. So I reckon it's a pretty good conduit into Galar. So can you tell me, tell our audience, what is Galar? Okay, so Galar, well, Galar at the moment is a print magazine that is all about regional Australia. And sort of even more kind of specific than that. It's about, I just want to convey how surprised and delighted I have been about living in regional Australia. You know, like I said before, the news that had cut through to me about life in the bush was tough. Floods, fires, farmers not earning enough money, all that, you know. So I thought that life might be a bit hard out here but my experience of being out here has sort of been the opposite you know it's there are all those things but there are all these other things you know there's community there's innovative people everywhere making really interesting businesses and that businesses that aren't all related to ag you know it's a much more diverse place than than I had assumed you know just just before so I guess I really wanted to make this magazine that could kind of capture some of that you know, something in between like the outback stations and the like verandas in the Southern Highlands, you know, something about that in between, which to me feels diverse and exciting and full of opportunity. So that's, that's, I guess, what I want the to be about. And how do you, when did you set off on this journey and how's it going now? So the first issue came out at uh, December, 2020, and we're working on our sixth issue now. Do you think being in lockdown helped to be able to get everything done and without the distractions of the world? It helped so much. Um, I mean, certainly we had a idyllic experience during lockdown, you know, because we had all the space and freedom of, of living not in a one bedroom apartment, you know, so our lockdown was, we still, there was a lot of sort of freedom involved. Um, For the most part, our kids could still go to school um, and there's certainly in those early scary days, there was no COVID around where we lived. So we felt mm. like we were really in a bubble, I think. I mean, and, and um, you know, I don't want to discount all the, the tremendous horrors and costs that, that everywhere else seems to have experienced with COVID, but just my own personal experience, you know, it, it was, I, it was kind of a really lucky time. I mean, even little things like all the you know how kids in the bush, they play, they sign up to play footy and you have to drive like 500 kilometres every weekend <laughs> for a game. You know, all that was off. So we didn't, there was, the calendar was all of a sudden just wiped and um, it, it was a, a really fertile ground for me in terms of being able to fully focus and concentrate on this project. I, I had a pretty similar experience because for me, like humans of ag, there's no doubt in my mind, there's no way that I would have been able to commit myself to building it and doing weekly podcasts and building the habits had it have not been for lockdowns and now obviously stepping into it full time it's like it was just a gem because there was no social life there was well yeah it was, it was tough for many but for me it was it provided such an incredible opportunity to actually pursue this what what has been a passion project but now 
hopefully a livelihood as well. It's yeah. um, it's interesting. It is, it is interesting, Ollie. And I mean, I wonder, I don't know about you now that things have sort of opened up again. I've realised that it's really important to keep some of that discipline of not letting the calendar be filled up with stuff, like to really be a bit um, more picky about what you choose to do, you know, oh. and, and just not do everything. And, and I think, I mean, certainly I live an hour out of town, you know, so there's some, um, I, I think that kind of isolation really helps. You know, I, I don't, I don't go to the supermarket every day. I, you know what I mean? There's like, mm. it sort of helps me keep some of that uninterrupted time. Um, but it's so, it's so easy just to get filled up again. And you've really got to choose, I guess, what you want your life to be like. Yeah. And it, there's definitely sacrifices in there. If you want to do something like these time consuming yeah. tasks. Uh, yeah. So uh, was it a one person show at the beginning? Was it, was it you collecting, writing, doing the stories? Yeah, it was one person completely. Like I was sort of obsessed, really. I'd wake up at 3 a.m. and I've, I've never felt so energised. You know, it's like I was on drugs and I'd just kind of work and work and work and work. And so I, I did everything in terms of getting the stories, but I did bring in an amazing designer, you know, like the, like I saw in, in the publishing, the book, they bring in designers. So brought in this amazing designer. So she said, I will make this look good and get it ready for print. Um, I brought in some other writers and other photographers to freelance because, you know, I, I didn't want to be just the like Annabelle Hickson show. I want this to be mm. a voice that represents lots of different people in regional Australia. So I definitely worked, even from the beginning, worked with that. But certainly in terms of like, you know, the bulk of it, it was me. And, and even the, um, what actually nearly killed me. <laughs> so I got to the point, printed the first one, sold quite a few with pre-orders, which was amazing because that took out some of that absolute fear of, you know, taking on financial risk by like paying for the print and, and all that. Um, so what nearly killed me though was when the cop, the cop issue one was printed, packing it up and sending it. That, like, for, I don't know, a week or two weeks, I was writing addresses, lab, and I, it, it, it nearly broke me. I mean, it was so, and even, like, going to, the, I had no idea what to do. So I'd drive to the post office and I'd have, like, all these things to deliver and I couldn't find a park. I was in Moronga. I was at, at my mom's house doing it. Oh, yeah. I thought, well, I thought that would be easier. You know, it would be, I could be near a post office and the rates were cheaper from posting from Sydney. I don't know that. But I couldn't find a car park anywhere near the post. So I was, the the logistics (laughs) of getting everything and posting it out, it actually nearly killed me. And from that point, you know, we've now got, um, I mean, we've got this, my colleague's mother-in-law lives in Orange and she's in charge of dispatch. It's totally taken over her house. When times get busy, she calls in her friends to help and they call themselves the Galar Grannies. <laughs> and, they, and they do all the posting. And, I mean, that they have taken such a weight off my shoulder. I, I, it wouldn't have been, I just don't think I could have kept that going. Are we going to see a story on the Galar Grannies? There needs to be a story on the Galar Grannies. I want to read a story on the Galar Grannies. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful women. When you got it back from the designer and printed for the first time, what was it like? Well, by the time I saw it, there was maybe a sort of a flicker of excitement, but that's it. <laughs> I just, I think, and I think this happens again and again with projects. I don't know if you're the same, but you put so much in getting them done. You know, I read every page 60 million times because, you know, I didn't want there to be a mistake. By the time it was actually printed, I was like ready to move on to the next thing. You know, and that's the same experience I have with a tree in the house. By the time it was actually printed, I'd lived with this project for so long and I was already thinking about the next thing. You know, so it wasn't this sort of moment where like trumpets sounded and I felt, you know, perfectly content. I mean, it was lovely, but I don't know. That's the least exciting part, I think, of doing it. It's the doing it. That's, yeah. what's, that's what's good. And some of the characters you've met through sharing exactly. the stories. Like that's it. That's what I'm into. The like the writing the pieces, the working with freelancers, the like that's where the heat's at. The the finished result, I mean, 
hopefully it's good and hopefully it gets better and better and that people, because, you know, if people don't like that finished product, there's no business. So, I mean, it's absolutely important, but it's, you know, it's like the full stop at the end of the sentence. Tell me what a favourite story of yours has been. Oh, well, Ingalar, I think this is still my favourite story. It was, um, th- this is a story that I've worked on and then I'll think about a story that someone else has worked on, but it, it was for issue one. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know how. And I, so I jumped in the car with my husband, my sister-in-law and a photographer and me, and we just kind of like hit the road, you know, we were like, okay, let's just go and find some stories. We went to Burke, um, Brewarina, we went out to Tipperborough and then we came back via Lightning Ridge. And I had seen on, I can't remember what show it was, maybe it was Backroads, one of those great ABC shows, and they'd interviewed this crew from Lightning Ridge, these opal miners that had that had sort of turned themselves into undertakers to provide a service for Lightning Ridge because there was no undertaker in Lightning Ridge. And um, you, you had to drive to Walgett, I think, and sometimes it could be be very hot the road could be very bumpy not good for dead bodies so these guys just sort of worked out how to do this themselves and that just absolutely captured my attention because that to me is about well it's sort of humorous it's about people having a go and just doing what needs to be done and not kind of just like solving problems themselves and I think that you know that has been something that's just delighted me again and again and again about life in regional Australia so I was like yes this is this is a story and I didn't know how to sort of make it um have its sort of own angle you know I didn't want it just to repeat but I thought I'll just rock up and see what happens and as luck would have it they um they invited me to a funeral they they were doing that day and I was like okay is that fine if I you know yeah yeah we check with the family no worries so we would turn up to this funeral (laughs) these four men in thongs you know opal miners like one with this huge big bushy beard that's sort of waving in the wind driving the what's the car that carries the coffins the hearse Hearse, driving the hearse and and they opened up the boot um the council a council worker was digging a hole for the grave you know with a really noisy tiny little digger at the same time and you know the sort of guests of the funeral the mourners were starting to arrive so it was all kind of like happening anyway they the hearse arrives, they open up the boot. It is the biggest coffin you have ever seen. It is huge. And the guy in it had made it himself <laughs> and had used it as like this massive coffee table <laughs> for ages. Anyway, he wanted to. I like it that much. I'm taking it to the grave with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, but he made, you know, he made it for himself. And I just, I love that. Anyway, all going well. Music was playing this like George Gershwin piece was just playing from the speakers like on repeat. It was quite sort of just felt quite absurd. And then the guys who <laughs> got the coffin out and they went to lower it in the hole, but the coffin was too big for the hole. The coffin was too big for the hole. You know, the, the, the dead guy's family was there, like watching all this and the opal men were swearing and flip-flopping over other graves. And it was, it was just so, like, it, it wasn't funny in that, like, I wasn't, no one was la- laughing at them. It was just delightful seeing human beings sorting this out for themselves I mean in the end they had to get tools from somewhere and they took off the handles and they they finally got it in and it was I don't know I just loved that story so much I loved everyone involved in it I loved what it represented and I really I think what I also love too is you just you can plan and control everything all you want but sometimes you just got to get out there and see what stories come your way. You know, it just, I just loved everything about it. And so to have that in issue one for me really was great too, because it sort of set the tone that Galah is not a sort of like aspirational lifestyle magazine. You know, I mean, I certainly do include a lot of beauty, like a a lot of like art, you know, some people who live in beautiful houses, but the heart of Galah is like representing these kind of people, you know, people solving problems in creative ways. So, yeah, that was, I think that was my favourite story that I've been involved in. And then, I mean, in terms of stories that other people have written, like I was saying before, what comes in, I think I could never have written that. You know, I, I never would have got that story. Like, I just get surprised again and again. I mean, 
there's this do you, I don't know if well, you might be familiar with it having grown up on the North Shore but Helen Kaminsky she made all those sort of raffia hats that everyone like your mum would have worn a Helen Kaminsky I reckon I'm just no. taking a guess um oh, mum's now do you want me to yell out Mom. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so um she was this sort of hat maker and you know built up a business that was really popular in Australia and overseas and she has moved out to um to the bush and she's really sick she's got a, a terrible kind of cancer and has um anyway a writer did a story about her interviewing her about you know like it could have just been a piece about you know famous hat maker you know now lives on a farm you know and, and he's not well but it was just so much more than that it was like what is important to Helen what is it, it was a really beautiful story and I think a lot of what Helen said even though it was specific to her it was just sort of tapped into this kind of universal I don't know longing for connection and I, it was just such a moving story. What's on the horizon for you guys what what's next? Okay what's next so a lot and I like chest, my chest is tightening because I don't know how, I don't know how we're going to do it. <laughs> so, so the magazine um, will keep being a magazine and um, we are at the moment working on how to create a digital world for Galar that will complement the mag and not cannibalize it. You know, and mm-hmm. it's, that's actually trickier than I thought. Like how, so we're, we're building a website. I'm really excited about newsletters. I actually think newsletters are an amazing, and because we publish so infrequently, you know, there's four months in between each issue. I think newsletters are a really great way to kind of um, keep that relationship between the readers going. Like I love, you know, the direct people can just reply to the email and, you know, you can be in a one-on-one conversation. And I just think that's so precious. I really do. Like, I don't know. I just feel like I get, you know, back to that slow, steady, real growth. I feel like that is what, you know, that is what will make a business. And that's how smaller independent media people like us, that's how we can be so different from the big, you know, Fairfax's news limiters. They can't have a one-on-one conversation with their readers because of the scale. So I think if we can work out how to make a business that's based on a much smaller scale, but a deeper you know, relationship with each reader. I feel like we've got, there's a real opportunity. So Mm. newsletters, um, we are going to do a book with a publisher, like a a big, beautiful sort of coffee table book with a hardcover. And that'll be really fun to, you know, try and capture that what's in the mag, but something that would suit a book, you know, it's quite. Yeah, that's cool. The the different mediums, like the different media and the different, like what they do best. I guess I'm really interested in, in print, doing what print does best. Long mm-hmm. reads, big, beautiful pictures, bit, you know, this really luxe feeling. Newsletters are much better for sort of snappy, um, more newsy stuff. Um, you know, the mag has to be, has, stories have to be pretty timeless because, because of the publishing schedule. And then the book has to be even more timeless. You, you know, because I, I just think it's really interesting thinking about all of that. Um, and then we are I'm just about I'm just about to um, open up a shop in Tenterfield. <laughs> are you? Just because you don't have enough on? No, I know. Well, this has kind of come out of the blue. So beautiful Wendy and the Galar Grannies. Wendy needs her house back. She it's got to a point where it, the dispatch cannot be in her house anymore. Um, she's been very good to us and very patient so far. So we I had to find a place to you know to sort of have the Galar headquarters and. You know, the rent in Orange is significantly more than the rent in Tenterfield. So I'm like, okay, let's move it up to Tenterfield. Um, mm-hmm. And in town, I was just looking for, I guess, a shed to hire to, you know. But then the, this place came was up for lease and it has this big shed out the back, perfect for dispatch, but a shop front out the front. <laughs> so I signed the lease. Uh, I get the keys on Monday. I am not at all prepared. Um but we will over time. I mean, the most important thing is just to have the dispatch set up. That's what I need, you know, to keep yeah, the business. Priority running. one. Priority one. But I think there's this real opportunity to use the shop front as a place. To, I mean, to we feature lots of artists, lots of producers, you know, have a place where we can either sell what they make 
mm-hmm. or invite them, you know, to come and like do a little pop-up exhibition or a cooking class or, you know, to bring this kind of human. Physical. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So I, I feel really excited about the concept and I feel petrified about finding the time to make that happen. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a small undertaking. Yeah. Well, that's it. I actually think now I'm starting to realize like, it's not just a matter of saying, okay, let's open up a shop. Retail is its own thing, you know, just as like editing the mag is its own thing. Publishing and distributing it is its own thing. Like this retail, like it's its own thing. So I'll have to find people to help me do it and people who'll do it better than I would. Oh, I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah. Well, you have to come and visit one day. You could we'll, do a, we'll do a pop-up podcast. A pop-up podcast. And you could do like a, a um, podcasting workshop. Yeah, done. Yeah. Okay. I'll put you on the cow. Sign me up. Yeah. When do you name me that? Tuesday? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Opening day, Monday. I've <laughs> <laughs> got a couple of other questions for you. What is it that has, has made you so passionate about regional Australia? I think it's just the the contrast in what I thought it was going to be like and what it actually is like you know that sort of ill-informed those ill-informed stereotypes that I held you know before I knew anything about it to my actual experience and and I just don't think it's being sort of sold as well as it should be (laughs) you know I mean everyone who lives in regional Australia knows there's there's bad but there's good and I just feel like, you know, we've got to talk more than just about how tough it is. Like, like I would love my, you know, I've got three kids. If any of them said that they wanted to, grow, you know, spend their adult lives in regional Australia, I would be so excited for them. And, you know, we've to, to attract other young dynamic people, like let's talk about the sort of exciting stuff as well as the like tough droughts and the mouse plagues and the, you know, that's, that's why I'm so passionate about it. So channeling that passion, you get the chance to go to, down to a school in, in Sydney, back to your high school, and you're chatting to the year 10 students about pursuing a career in agriculture in rural Australia. What's your advice to them? I think my advice is prepare to be flexible and, you know, multi, like being able to do lots of things is important. Like, I couldn't walk into a newspaper job in Moree, but, you know, over time, my writing skills became photography skills, became publishing skills, and you can kind of make your own, your own world. So I don't know, be flexible and be open. God, if I was in year 10 and heard that, I'd just roll my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? Like it is. Yeah, creativity counts for a lot and so does enthusiasm. I just think enthusiasm is the most underrated quality. You know, people like to sort of, especially when you're young, I think you, like, you want to be taken seriously. You want, you know, you want people to think you're smart and, you know, so you can kind of like smother that enthusiasm. But I don't know, just yeah. let that enthusiasm rip. Oh, it's infectious, isn't it? Like it yeah. brings other people up around you. Yeah. If you had a billboard anywhere... What would it say? So I don't, what I want it to say, which is really impossible because it's too long, like the font would be so small that you couldn't see it as you were driving by. So I'm going to say what I want it would to say and then maybe what it could say as a substitute. So there's this quote that I've got on my pinboard, you know, above my desk, and I just think it's the best um, it's, it's what's been really useful to me in terms of advice. And it's by an American writer called Anne Lamott, who I'm really obsessed with. And I think everyone needs to read all of her books. And she says, so I'm going to read it out and then I'll give you the billboard version. Um, so she says, I think perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. The truth is you will die anyway and that a lot of people who aren't even looking at their feet are going to be doing a whole lot better than you and have a lot more fun while they're doing it. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess if you had to paraphrase it into a billboard, it'd be something like fortune favours the brave. Like just go for it. 
And what you, you know, if it doesn't work out, you learn from it and you do something else. Just go for it. Yeah. It's like following what's true to you, isn't it? It's like, do what you want to do. One other question. What's a question that you'd like me to ask a future guest? Oh, I love this question, Ollie. I love it. Um, I mean, really, fundamentally, all I'm interested in and all I really want in life is to sort of feel some kind of connection with other people. You know, like I just, just want to feel connection. I'd like you to ask them something like, what, I mean, I don't know if this is, I don't know how you could, in, you know, if this is appropriate, but like, what do you miss? You know, what do you yearn for? Like what, things like that. Like, I mean, I miss, I miss the sort of intensity of like those beautiful friendships in your twenties, you know, before marriage, before kids, before busy work. Like I miss that. I, I just want to know, am I alone? Are there other people? Like, what do you miss? It's a good question. I actually reckon I'm going to start throwing some of these questions out after each episode onto, onto socials as well and see if we can get the community oh and see gosh. what people reckon on it. That is such a good idea, Ollie. Well, Annabelle, thank you so much for taking the time to have a bit of a chat this morning. I've, I've enjoyed it and I can't wait to share this one and ask a few of these questions and see what people come back with. Yeah, I can't wait to hear. And thanks, Ollie. And I look forward to seeing you in Tenterfield. Can't wait. Good luck with it. <laughs> If you enjoy this episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast, we would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us either on our socials, Instagram at humans of agriculture with an underscore, or jump on our website, flick us a message and uh, give us any suggestions, any feedback, what you reckon of this podcast. We've got a few more exciting guests coming up. We've got a couple other projects happening on the side as well. So there's going to be quite a few different podcasts popping up all over the place and you'll uh, you'll be hearing me across a few different platforms so as always thank you for joining us look after yourselves stay safe stay sane can't wait to join you again next week